Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Jack Bailey, CEO of G1 Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jack. Great to be here, Raul. Wonderful. So Jack, to kick us off, if you could walk us through the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Sure. It's certainly a bit long in tooth, but back in the day when I was an undergrad, I was studying genetics and this was mid eighties. And it was a time where there was a lot of optimism and hope about what genetics and genomics could do. And so it was just really fascinating for me as an undergrad. I ended up being a biology major, studying genetics, concentration in genetics, and did a little bit of time in a lab. And that was where I think the cold, hard reality of research hit me of, did I really want to be on the science side of this for the rest of my career? I opted going to business school, and that was a great pivot to be able to get into the business of the science. Specifically, I worked actually at the North Carolina Biotechnology Center, which was the first biotechnology center set up across the country. It was, I think, a great example of public-private partnership. It helped form a lot of the state legislation, and it was actually utilized as the federal government began forming their own legislative framework for the emerging biotechnology industry. So that really reaffirmed to me that I could go into life sciences from a business aspect, even though I was passionate and fascinated by the science of it. So ended up going to Eli Lilly. At that time, they had launched, obviously, one of the first uh, biotechnology-derived products. So it was just a logical place for me to go to balance a great management program. So I ended up being there for 19 years, just had a great series of experiences and rotations, both domestic and global, across the whole series of different therapeutic areas. And then had a chance to get back home to my roots here in North Carolina with GlaxoSmithKline when Andrew Whitty took over and was looking to bring in some fresh management. So that was a great experience. It was a company about twice the size at the time, had vaccines, which I ran for many years, which I did not have at Lilly, but a company that was very science-driven, much like Lilly, put in about 12 years there. It was great. But I knew this whole time I was getting a calling to smaller company biotech environment, sat on a couple boards, and G1 was one of the company boards I was on. And I just am very inspired by our lead asset. And it was something that for me was compelling both as a board member. And then they ultimately asked for me to step in as CEO. And I did that about two years ago. And it's been great and look forward to certainly talking about some of the fascinating work we're doing down here. Great, Jack. I'd love to understand how that transition was for you going from being a board member to then running G1. I mean, I think there have been a couple transitions, right? Big company for 30 years down to yeah. small company. We're less than 200 folks here. That's been a wonderful transition. I think that while Big Pharma has the resources to scale the global reach, which is great. I really enjoy the agility and maneuverability of a smaller biotech. As I said, I looked for probably a good five years at different opportunities. I was really trying to hone in on innovation that is inspiring and then working with high quality people. I've been blessed both at Lilly and GSK to have that and certainly didn't wanted to continue that here in a biotech. And that's what I found with G1. Joining as a board member first, I think was actually really great. And it's not too uncommon for that to occur. It's probably more the minority, but Certainly not. It happens uh, more than a few times where a board member gets a chance to both understand, engage, and connect with the board members. 
be able to sort of look under the hood from a strategy, governance, operating standpoint, get to interact with the senior leadership team. And all of that, I think, really enabled a very smooth transition between the prior CEO who ended up staying on the board and then myself taking over the CEO role. So I think it was wonderful how it was handled. I feel fortunate. There's always going to be some things that are new, but it really sets, I think, up CEOs for success to be able to be in that board capacity, both in terms of the dynamics with the board and in terms of being able to step into the operating executive role that much quicker and smoother. Yeah. And for folks that are thinking about perhaps making the switch from big pharma to biotech, and particularly given your transition to running a biotech, I'm curious, what was perhaps one or two things that were non-obvious learnings when you stepped into that role? Yeah. And maybe I'll add to that. There were a couple of priorities I had at the start, which is, again, that I really wanted to be inspired by the innovation. I just know myself well enough. I'm a purpose-driven person that. When I'm inspired, that's the fuel that keeps me going through the normal headwinds that continue to hit the industry. So inspiring innovation and then good people. And that included the board. These were experienced board members. I think they demonstrated really strong strategic alignment. And those are important things that you don't always see. So from my standpoint, those were a couple of the key drivers. Sorry, I'm zoned on your question there. The second part. You know, surprises or learnings, non-obvious learnings that you had along the way. So even with all that set up, you do step into it. I think you get another opportunity to click down on the capabilities. So sometimes you do have to you know, swap out some of the talent. You do get a better sense of truly how the work is done in the company versus just being a board member. And so that was nothing that was too surprising. But I would say there were a couple of personnel changes you end up having to make at that when any type of leadership change occurs. And this is as much a difference between big pharma and biotech is Big Pharma, you just have so many layers and forums and committees. Here, you're in the sausage making, whether it's on the development side, whether it's on some of the different functions that at a Big Pharma, you're just a bit more distant on and you get more of a distillation of what is occurring. So I always describe this, you're as much of a player coach in a lot of the management ranks of a biotech. Big Pharma, you're it just, you've got such big stabs and so many functions with layers that purely setting direction here, you get a little closer to some of the processes, the decisions, et cetera. And I think that's good. It enables the leadership team and the leader like myself to make even better decisions because there's real alignment between what we think is occurring and what is actually occurring. Great. To the point that you brought up about regarding headwinds, you know, we're at a at an inflection point now across our sector and obviously tightening up of capital markets, one out of every five employees switching jobs in biotech over the last year. I'd love to hear from your perspective, what are some of those headwinds and what you're seeing across the macro environment and also opportunities perhaps? Sure. Yeah. You've hit on probably two of the biggest ones. Certainly I would start with talent. It's just a fascinating time. It's one of the many offshoots of COVID is how you make sure you attract the talent, retain the talent. What is the working model for that talent? Hybrid, full-time, remote, et cetera. Talent is always at the top of the agenda, but the last couple of years have been unprecedented. Most of the data you see, right, a typical year in biotech, 15% turnover. It was at least double that last year. It's at least the data I'm looking at. It's, yeah. it's, it's tempering itself a little bit this year, but it's still above the long-run average. So you just got to really work hard on making sure you're selecting people that are committed and in the right fit, that you're always looking at the culture, the operating environment, the operating model to try and meet the needs of the greatest number of folks possible. It's just, it's full time. It's always been important, but it's even more important in this environment. 
I think the financing, you're absolutely right. The frothiness in the market and the consolidation that's now occurring since sort of February of last year when things tipped down, it's not insignificant. Second deepest biotech turndown or deepest turndown on record, second longest to the 2000 turndown. That's interesting, right? I think it's the old Warren Buffett when the tide goes out. You see who's got the swim trunks on. I think it's a healthy process, frankly, every five or six years. But this one is a bit unduly intense because it was more sector-specific last year, and now we're caught up in the broader macro downturn. So I feel fortunate. We've got a good CFO, a great board, and so I think we've been able to manage our capital strategy well in this. We've got five data readouts that starts in the fourth quarter and goes throughout next year. That, along with an approved product that's safe and is growing, I think puts us in a different category of a lot of these companies, but clearly we're going to see some consolidation in the industry. It's underway. It will continue. Question is, how long do we get to another point? But I've also added stuff like supply chain, right? In COVID itself, running five studies with COVID at its peak, it felt like whack-a-mole. Different countries having outbreaks. You had to stop, restart, add sites, et cetera. Then you had the situation in Ukraine, right? Eastern Europe, as you know, is huge for both big pharma and biotech on clinical trials and between both the infrastructure in Ukraine being challenged along with the Russian sanctions, along with just COVID itself, which could frequently shut down the actual sites. It has been a dynamic last couple of years from that front in terms of headwinds. And then finally, supply chain, glass, steel, some of the timelines on aspects like that have really extended out. And there were even blips on more of the disposable side, you know, and a lot of the lab supply kits for some of the clinical studies. So that's ameliorated itself a bit, but even still glass and steel, you got some long lead time. So you've got to plan ahead. Yeah. Great. And let's talk about G1. Would love to learn about what you all are working on now. And you made some exciting progress over the last couple of years. So please share that with us. Yeah, so maybe drop back to the roots of the company. 2008, one of the two founders was Dr. Ned Sharpless. He was running the Lineberger Cancer Institute over here at UNC Chapel Hill. He had a vision for improving the chemotherapy process via essentially modulation of the CDK4-6 inhibitors. And so he and his co-founder came up with this idea for trilocyclib. You may know the name because he went on, of course, to run National Cancer Institute, for five yeah. years. He was also interim FDA head. We've been fortunate here. Once he rolled off the public service, he's re-engaged the company here earlier this summer in terms of a board capacity. But we had this vision for fundamentally transforming that chemotherapy experience. As we all have seen with family, friends, loved ones who get diagnosed with cancer, chemotherapy is the backbone. Over a million patients a year in the U.S. get it to try and serve as the backbone therapy for curing the cancer. It works great in killing the cancer cells, but it's very indiscriminate. It also kills a lot of your good cells that are produced by your bone marrow, those white blood cells that fight infection, the red blood cells that transport oxygen, and your platelets that enable uh, coagulation, et cetera. The vision he had and what Cosella does is you get a 30-minute infusion right before you get your chemotherapy cycle, and it transiently arrests only about 1% of your stem cells are in circulation at any given point. And they, of course, go on to progenitor cells and form these red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. Essentially, it temporarily freezes your bone marrow 
so that when the chemo comes in and kills the cancer cells and those good cells that are floating around circulating, it doesn't signal to your bone marrow to keep pumping out more, which is what normally happens. And if you're on a multi-day chemo regimen, you can imagine that 1% that are floating that get killed, well, then it triggers the body to pump out 3 to 5% more. Those get killed on the second day of chemo and on and goes. And that's how you, A, cause some of these single lineage challenges like neutropenia that could lead into severe neutropenia and febrile neutropenia. You don't have have the white blood cells to fight infection. You can be hospitalized. You get anemia. You know, so many patients talk about, I have no energy after my latest cycle of chemotherapy. I just laid in bed for three days. It's because all those red blood cells were killed. So by protecting them, you avoid the neutropenia and the subsequent hospitalization with infections. You are able to provide a better quality of life because of patients do not have nearly the anemia. And you avoid things like thrombocytopenia when all those platelets get killed. So at day's end, this is a fundamentally revolutionary way to still allow chemotherapy and actually make it more effective without a lot of these, quote, myelotoxicities. You spare the patient from having to be hospitalized or using all these other alternative interventions that drive up the cost. The real-world evidence shows you save nearly $20,000 per patient just in our initial indication of extensive stage small cell lung cancer. So it's really compelling, both from a clinical innovation and from a value proposition. And that's why, frankly, the FDA gave it breakthrough designation, priority review, first pass approval. That's why the payers love it. I've never had a product role that is this well reimbursed by payers, which, as we know, the last decade and a half, payers have really been a key headwind or hurdle to getting innovation adopted. And then finally, NCCN, which is the gold standard in oncology. I've been in and out of oncology for 30 years. I've never had a dual committee recommendation, and certainly not in six weeks post-approval, which is what we got with Cosella. It's a really fascinating product. Small cell lung cancers are first indication. We've got five studies underway on an array of different tumor types and with different chemo regimens. And also the unique thing is in combination with other agents, checkpoint inhibitors, in ADC currently, but also some preclinical work on other areas like tidgets, oncoviruses, et cetera. So we're really excited about what this can pose in terms of not only taking chemotherapy experience from a very negative one from a patient, but by moving this to a proactive, multi-lineage protective approach versus currently it's all reactive. Once you feel bad, you get hospitalized, you get growth factor, you get a blood transfusion, you get a platelet transfusion. Patients don't want to go through that, drives up the cost, decreases quality of life, and is a reactive way of dealing with it to the point where your bone marrow can actually get exhausted because each cycle of chemo, you're doing more damage to it. We're excited with this initial indication, but as excited with the potential broader label that we'll be pursuing across different tumor types, different chemo regimens, and different combinations. Great. And Jack, are you guys commercializing Casella yourselves? Yeah. Initially, the first year was with a partnership with a privately held big pharma company, Barrier Ingelheim. What we saw was there were some gaps there. And so we've opted to build out our own sales force earlier this year, got them in place. And we've seen a nice bump up because of that. We knew that the partnership would always be limited in time. The original contract was just three years because as we got these other indications, for instance, we've got a phase three study underway in colorectal cancer a phase three underway in metastatic triple negative breast cancer, got several phase two studies underway, including in bladder, 
neoadjuvant breast cancer. So we knew at some point we had to pull the trigger. This was as good a time as any and pleased with it. So from our standpoint, it was a little bit of a bumpy first year, both because of COVID and this co-promotion. I think launching, especially in supportive care, which is our initial indication, several of those other studies, including the phase three triple negative and the combinations, those are all efficacy focused, which is the unique aspect of Cosella. Not only does it protect the bone marrow, from the myeloid lineages in terms of the red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. It also protects and enhances the immune system. And that's where we saw some very impressive hazard ratios in our phase two triple negative breast cancer. So it's a single mechanism of protection, but yielding both myeloprotection along with anti-tumor efficacy. So given all that that's in front of us, we just thought we knew we had to do our own sales force and it was better to do it now. Yeah, that's great. It's not too often nowadays that biotechs are commercializing their own assets while having multiple programs in the clinic. And I think many folks that are in biotech, you know, a lot of us have never really worked at companies that have commercial products. I'm curious how that impacts dynamic and culture on the team in terms of having an R&D aspect to your company, but also having a commercial aspect. It's a great question on multiple fronts. One is, I think, organizationally, to your point, Anytime you go from an R&D solely to now an R&D and commercial, it's a different flavor, right? There's concerns about, are we going to balance both of them, value both of them, et cetera? And certainly that's my job as CEO to make sure that both understand they're both critical. It would do no good for the commercial folks simply to sell this initial indication and for us not to have our development team working on all these other ones. By the same token, it does no good to keep developing additional indications if we're not effective at selling them. So I'm very comfortable with it. It's what I grew up with. But you're right. You could feel a palpable change when we opted to commercialize it effectively ourselves. I think at a broader note, to your point, it's becoming, I've seen it having tracked the biotech industry for decades now, the gap between a big farm and a biotech is clearly closing. More and more in part because of the capital being poured into this biotech sector, there's more and more companies like us that say, wait a minute, we think we can take this across the finish line, not just from a regulatory approval standpoint, but into the full commercialization. A lot of folks like me are leaving big pharma, right? The ability to avoid some of the big company stuff that a company is 100,000 people versus being able to be in a more nimble biotech where you can really, it's a speedboat versus an oil tanker. That's very appealing. And so you're getting a more well-worn path by folks who can bring the capabilities and launch experiences, et cetera, to be able to do it. And they like it because, again, as we know, biotech is increasingly, especially SMID biotech. Some of the data, you know, it's 70% of all the products approved last year were out of companies yeah. like G1. If you're passionate about innovation, you like to be able to have an impact in terms of preparing for launch and launching, and you avoid a lot of the you know broader bureaucracy that you can find in some of the global pharma. I just think you're going to keep saying the capital keeps flowing. I think you're going to see more companies like G1 go the distance and actually commercialize themselves. Interesting. I bet it must be quite a learning experience for your team as well. You know, most folks in biotech haven't been exposed to the commercial side of the business and having someone like you who has come from the commercial side, I think could be really interesting for your team. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, there are folks who literally wonder, how does this product (laughs) get to patients? I think I would just use this as a tip of the hat to our executive team. Our head of business development was 17 years at Pfizer, senior leader in business development. Our chief commercial officer, officer. It was 20 years, multiple launches under his belt in a global pharma company. There are folks here that are head of R&D is who did this sort of big pharma transition to biotech 10 years ago. So all credit, I think that the board has 
helped develop a senior leadership team that has experience. And you're seeing that filter down our VP level. We've got folks with big pharma. So that's why I say you feel the gap closing between what used to be a huge leap between a big pharma global company and a small biotech. It really felt like a chasm. I mean, on so many different fronts. But I can tell you that gap is closing. At least that's what it feels like here at G1s. Great. And Jack, you sit on a couple of boards and there is quite a bit of volatility across multiple sectors right now. I'm curious what advice you're providing to perhaps some of the boards that you sit on in terms of how to navigate this very dynamic environment we're currently in and how to prepare for the next year or so. The capital strategy, right? You just really got to be thinking your runway, sources of capital, burn rates, all of that. We just don't know how long this downturn is going to continue. There's Clearly going to be, as we said, some sifting out of the companies, the 700 plus publicly traded biotech companies. You think about the explosion, both from the 2000 downturn and then the 08 downturn. I mean, the number of companies out there, and you could say right or wrong, right? A lot of capital poured in, a lot of companies were formed, maybe some went public a little too early. You could argue the innovation bar was a little fluid there on what they went public with. But again, this is a normal cyclicality of any industry. You'll do the shakeout. So I think really making sure that folks are what they think they need for capital. You almost you know want to say double it, but you really got to prepare for an even extended, a longer, more extended downturn. I think clarity on strategy. It's easy to get enamored with all the different options and assets and ways to pursue, but. Again, that feeds into your capital strategy and it accelerates your burn rate. And so I think strategic focus, I think really paying heightened attention to your capital strategy. And then I also think being creative on your operating model. I mean, we are very much, I would say, a vendor managed company in that, whether it's manufacturing, right, whether it's a lot of our data research, data processing. I mean, we really look at a vendor first model versus, hey, let's build it under the assumption that we'll do it all. I just think you have to really think long and hard with where the evolution of the industry is, the capabilities, and that impact on your capital strategy. Because I think a lot of companies did the old field of dreams, they built it and it will come and they're just paying the price right now. So it's both the discipline on the capital strategy and it's creativity in terms of how you can get things done. Yeah. In some recent conversations with other folks, it seems like the CEOs that have been through these cycles before, to your point, there's a relative calm with those types of folks like yourself, whereas first-time founders and CEOs, I think there's a feeling of angst, given particularly some of the dynamics that you were talking about, You know, where times were good and perhaps folks were overhiring or really drove up burn quite a bit and have lost optionality. So interesting points there, Jack. Looking forward, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the current legislative and regulatory environment and what are some concerns you have there and also where are there some opportunities there too? If the sector-specific headwinds weren't enough between accessing capital and attracting and maintaining talent and getting glass vials in your lab, you click it up a level to your point and you look at the broader macro environment. And certainly it's, I would say right now, a bit challenging. But again, and I think it comes from a couple different threads. I'll break them out into legislative and regulatory and then maybe operational. I think legislative, you're right. You think about things like the infrastructure bill last year that had a, a wastage provision that I think is hitting some companies. If you look at the Inflation Reduction Act and both the distortion between nine years for small molecules until they become eligible for, quote, government price negotiation, I think many characterize it as really a price control. 
and the impact of looking at that as an LOE event, because it's so difficult to put a value on that when you talk about a 95% tax, if you don't agree with the negotiated price. But the distortion between small molecules at nine years and biologics at 13, and what that does internally from a capital allocation standpoint. So you've got, I think, some real challenges in terms of with COVID, it was just a wonderful example of the value of life sciences, biotech, the innovation, the cusp we stand on. There's a reason they call this the biotech century. Again, as a guy who started in a lab, I've never been more excited of the science. You look at mRNA, you look at the cell and gene therapy, you look at the progress on Alzheimer's, You couple that with a $200 full-body genomic screening, and you just see the type of healthcare system fueled by this innovation that we have the potential to step into. But that's going to require this broader macro environment, especially legislatively, of being more conducive, I think, to cultivating and maintaining what is a real jewel in the U.S., which is this biotech industry. Countries around the world dream of having what we have here I do worry, especially post-COVID, how quickly we pivoted from an appreciation of it. And frankly, as Operation Warp Speed showed, the opportunity for collaboration to get that innovation out even quicker to now some challenges, I think, regulatorily, right? The FDA is perennially, I think, challenged with funding and personnel to be able to process this innovation at a speed that ensures it gets to patients fast enough, much like the COVID vaccines, which was a wonderful example of how much time we can cut off in terms of getting it from a twinkle in the eye of a researcher to actually benefiting the patient. I would hate for us to slide back or not take good lessons from that from a regulatory standpoint. And then from an operational reimbursement, it's clear that some of these therapies are, the economics of it are going to challenge access and nobody wants that in our industry, but we've got to figure out a way to align the incentives with the payers and the reimbursement system so that the true benefit is understood, the data shows it, it's incorporated so that this world of sort of value-based care or total cost of care, we slide in and are helpful rather than that's used as a blockage to try and get it to patients. And I am really concerned about that because just in my 30-year career, managed care never existed. I was started with fee-for-service, saw the managed care wave, then saw the PBM wave, right? And how much was extracted for them. You saw specialty pharmacy, you saw step edits and all these things that just made it more and more difficult to get the innovation to patients. While it's understandable, it's part of the normal evolution of generating or cultivating more value out of the dollars spent on healthcare, I just worry sometimes that the system may not end up in the best place in terms of the potential that innovation can bring. We can talk about more of that later. Yeah. And I'm curious, Jack, you've been on the big pharma side and obviously now on the biotech side and you're sitting on boards. What are some specific misconceptions that folks have about the life sciences sector if they're not familiar with how it all works? It's a long list. And I'll start at the highest level. I mean, when they travel abroad, right, they'll see a product for 90% of the price and they'll say, wait a minute, how is that possible? We all know that it's basically, you know, the top couple markets, U.S., China, Japan, maybe Germany. And beyond that, it's really margin gathering. And most of those countries run different systems. So if you don't have the U.S. with more of a appropriate market-based pricing market, you're not going to find the products in those other ones. So I think right there with this whole notion that the U.S. is somehow we're hurting U.S. patients, you won't have the innovation without a, the appropriate pricing model. I think when you get into the U.S. alone, you know, yeah, there are some price tags on some of these products that, you know, are a little bit eye-watering for people. But you think about 
whether it's curing blindness or the value of being able to push out Alzheimer's for five or 10 years, our own product, right? I mean, I think we did a very responsible thing. We priced it. It's $34,000 for a patient, but you look at what you're able to offset in $20,000 plus of healthcare costs alone, let alone the quality of life a patient has not being hospitalized or getting, you know, blood transfusions because they can't get out of bed. You just say, how do you put a price on that? And then probably most scary to me is back to your Inflation Reduction Act. That may appeal in the short term to say, well, we're going to drive down the price here. So we're making it more accessible to patients today. My challenge would be who's speaking to the patient tomorrow? I've got two kids. If some of this government price control stops, you know, and the the numbers vary, dozens of products to hundreds of products, who speaks for that patient for the product that never came to life to got to market because it was cut? And I think if you look at the small molecule challenge, this nine years where that's effectively an LOE event, you've trimmed off, call it five years. I can tell you, we will adjust, ours is a small molecule, we will adjust how we do our development going forward, knowing that. Now, again, at day's end, who speaks for the patient that we may not have an indication that can help them because of this, or a product may never come to see the light of day to help them because some of these legislative and regulatory decisions that may seem that they're helping in the near short term, but it's actually curbing innovation. And we can look around the globe and you see this, right? Europe in the 50s and 60s was a hotbed for large pharma companies. And by and large, a lot of that is transferred here to the U.S. Certainly when you look at the biotech, the biologic sciences that have emerged in the last 30, 40 years, it is heavily headquartered here exactly because we've been able to sort of keep that societal agreement of good science for a limited period of time, gets a market-based price, then it releases in as a generic. The whole thing starts again. It can be complex to understand that. It can feel at times, well, wait a minute, why can't we just drop the price? The second pill costs pennies to make or whatever. But the reality is the system has worked well to balance those competing interests, both in terms of today's patient and tomorrow's patient. But I think that balance could get distorted here or disrupted by some of these recent decisions. Yeah, great. Thanks, Jack, for sharing your perspective on this very, very important topic. Before we wrap up, typically how we like to wrap up is like to ask, given all of your experience and all that you've seen, what's one piece of advice you would provide your younger self if you could? I think this is your quintessential knowledge-based industry. Life sciences sits within the $4 trillion U.S. healthcare system, the largest market in the world. If it was its own country, the GDP would put it as fourth or fifth in the world. So you can imagine, let's say, walking into Germany or walking into the entire country of France and somebody saying, understand our total GDP of $4 trillion. The interplay between biotech and this broader healthcare system of $4 trillion spend, it's only going to become more and more intertwined. The aging of the population, the increase of the government as a payer with the growth in Medicaid and Medicare, et cetera. I would really urge anybody entering into the life sciences industry, biotech, et cetera, is to really carve out time and be a dedicated student for life of understanding how does this innovation that we're creating fit into this broader system? Because that broader system is going to continue to impact whether that innovation sees the light of day. And that should be the calling for all of us is it does no good to create something that's academically interesting, but never actually benefits a patient. And so I would just urge them to be a student, not only of the science, but of the environment, the healthcare system that we're placing that science because that is going to continue to evolve as we wrestle with these issues of access to medicines, cost of healthcare, 
et cetera. So just being a student for life with a broader landscape of putting this stuff in, I think will serve us all well. Great. Well, Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed the, the conversation and congratulations on all the exciting progress at G1. Thanks, Raul. Really appreciate being with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.